based on your age, there will be certain days that you remember where you were. If you're born before 1936, chances are you'll remember where you were when you heard the news that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. America was suddenly thrust into a world war. More than 2,000 people had been killed. It was a day that would change our world forever. If you're around my age, chances are you'll remember where you were when you heard the news that President Kennedy had been shot and killed. That day would change the course of our nation forever. If 21 years ago you were living in Oklahoma City, chances are you can remember where you were when you heard or felt the explosion of the bomb that destroyed the Murrah building. 168 people died and it would change the course of our city forever. Fifteen years ago, I'm sure you can remember where you were when you heard the news that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center, a tower, and then how we had a plane crash into the Pentagon and into a field in Pennsylvania and a second plane. And by then, most of us were watching TV by the time we saw the Twin Towers come down. Almost 3,000 people died. That day changed our world forever in a very significant way. I'm sure you can remember where you were. But more important than remembering where you were, the question is, where are you today? You see, whenever we have these kinds of significant tragedies, they not only change our world in that moment, but they have lasting impacts on us. And the question is, where are you today because of those tragedies? I know there are some who 15 years later find themselves terrified about the idea of another terrorist attack. There are others who now find themselves being very suspicious and angry towards immigrants Still others find themselves very angry and suspicious towards all Muslims. Where are you? It doesn't have to be that way. But all tragedies force us to stop and to reflect upon our lives and to think about what are the things that matter the most. That's what these kinds of tragedies do. They force us to look at our lives and say, what's really important? What matters the most? What's the one thing? This morning, I want to continue the sermon series that we started last Sunday, The One Thing. We have said for these few weeks, we really want to spend time examining our lives, looking at it, and trying to decide what things matter, what is important. What's the one thing? I've been reading a book by Gary Keller, one of the founders of the Keller Williams Real Estate, and he made some fascinating observations. And maybe just because I found that's really applied to me, it, it spoke to me, but you know, I, I'm a list maker. I start every day making a list. What do I need to accomplish today? I think most people do that. 
they either write it down, but some people don't write it down. They just think about it in their own mind. But we all think, what do I need to do today? And he made the observation. He said, you make your list, but not everything matters at the same amount. Not everything of the same importance. And yet we tackle the list and we'll start doing this and doing that and doing this. But you may not be doing the things that really matter the most. And so he suggested the way you start each day is by making your list and then asking, now that I have this list and I recognize not all things are equal, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that matters most that I get done today? And yes, I may need to do a whole bunch of other things, but I may not get to all of them. What's the one thing that really matters the most? Last week, Reverend Dave Petit began our sermon series by saying that probably what matters the most is our relationship with God. That if we are centered in God, if we have that as our foundation, it affects everything else. And so what he suggested was, what if we all made a commitment to have a daily devotional? Throughout this sermon series, shouldn't we have a daily devotional to make time for something that really matters? The one thing, it sure is easy to set that aside because of all we have to do. Shouldn't we have a daily devotional? Well, today I want to talk about another thing that I believe is so important and matters, and that is not only listening to God, but listening to one another. It's about our relationships. When you stop on a day like today, the 15th anniversary of 9-11, You can't help but stop and think how it reminds us all that life is so uncertain. In just a moment, everything can change. And you ask all the people who are affected by 9-11 what really mattered, it's people. It's the relationships. And yet how often that's really not the thing we've listed out as the most important And so I want us to think about our relationships. And and each week we're going to make suggestions of something you do this week. And I got a suggestion for you. You know, I I love technology. And I love all those cool things, an iPhone, an iPod. We got all these things. What if this week, whenever you came to lunch, whether you're eating with a friend or a coworker, or when you come home to dinner, You take your phone and you put it on silent and put it away and do not answer any text or emails or um, any tweets or anything else. You close your computer, turn off the TV and for a short period of time, listen, focus on the person who is in front of you. It's how you build relationship to know where other people are. It's why I love our scripture lesson this morning from this letter to letter of James. It is a fascinating letter. You know, it's towards the very end of the New Testament, way towards the end of our Bible. Most of you probably never get to the letter of James. It is there because Martin Luther didn't like it. Martin Luther, who certainly was the founder of the Protestant Reformation, it was Martin Luther who kind of reordered the, uh, the structure of the, the New Testament and he put James near the end because 
Martin Luther lived in the 16th century, a time when the church began to emphasize you can, in a sense, buy your way, earn your way into heaven by the things you do. And Martin Luther said that's not true. Paul would tell you it is by faith alone, in God's grace alone, we are saved. Free grace. And of course Martin Luther was right. But James was written in the first century. And he is writing to a different time and in different issues of what Martin Luther was dealing with. And James is writing to the early church and saying, you know the gospel, now you need to do it. Not just be hearers of the word, you need to do the word. We read that in our scripture lesson just a few moments ago, and that's what bothered Martin Luther so much. We need to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. That is true. We need to do. We don't know the author of this letter. Some people say it was James, the brother of Jesus, Other people say, no, no, it was some person, a part of the church near the end of the first century. It doesn't matter. I like to think it was James, the brother of Jesus. But we think that the author here has this letter, but it's not really a letter, it's a sermon. In fact, he has over 100 exhortations telling people, this is what you need to do. Because you see, the author of James understood you got Jews who've worked at following the good Jewish law of Moses all their life, and you got Gentiles who've been worshiping the gods of Rome and Greece, and now they're all together in one church. How are we going to make it? He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. You want to focus on what matters? You want to be in relationship in the church? Then be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. I want us to think about our relationships this morning as one of those things that really matters, that is so important. And there's just two things I want to say. First of all, learn to say No. How can you be in God's Word when you're too busy to know God's Word? We can be so busy doing so many things, you don't have time to listen. You don't have time to listen to God. You don't have time to listen to other people just because we are so busy. As I said earlier, we're all making our list And then we start tackling them even though we may not be doing the things that matter the most. You know, I I look at young families today and I feel sorry for them. I, I look at my son, my daughter, both married, small children, and I talk to them. And, you know, there are so many demands on children nowadays from their school and you got to put them in sports, and you got to put them in ballet, and they got to be singing, and they got to do this and that. And if you don't do it, you're made to feel guilty as a young parent that you're not giving your kids all these opportunities. I look at how much it stresses them out. Not everything matters the same. Not everything is the most important. You got to learn to say no. 
I look at my life and all the opportunities, your life and all the things that come your way that you could do. You can be so busy. Does everything matter the same? When we get stressed and we're so busy, we forget the things that matter. You've got to learn to say no if you're going to say yes to the one thing. Back in 1975, I went to seminary. And I remember it because in 1973, a fascinating experiment was done with seminary students. And all the seminaries were kind of a buzz. In 1973, some researchers got together and asked some seminary students to participate, and they didn't realize they were doing this experiment. They took these seminary students, broke them into two groups, and to one group they said, we want you to prepare a speech on the Good Samaritan. You remember the story? A man is hurt on the side of the road. The Samaritan comes by to help the man hurt on the side of the road. To the other group they said, we want you to prepare a speech on jobs at the seminary. Then, in each group, they broke them in half. One day, when they were getting ready, they would come in and say, when it was their turn, you're late. you got to get there quickly. To the other group, their turn would be coming up, and they said, oh, you got plenty of time. Just mosey on over there. They'll be ready for you soon. And what they didn't know was the experimenters went and got a man and had him lie down on the sidewalk And he was bent over and he was coughing and obviously in distress. And it was the only way you could get from this building to this building was to walk down that hall, that road. And they wanted to see if these seminary students would stop and help the man hurt on the side of the road. I mean, these are seminary students after all. How many do you think stopped? Less than half. Less than half of the seminary students stopped to help the man who was hurting. But it really didn't matter were they giving a speech on jobs at the seminary or were they giving a speech on the Good Samaritan. What really mattered was time. Because those who were told they were running late, 90% did not stop to help. Even when they had to step over the man to get to the place where they were going to talk about the Good Samaritan. 90% did not stop because of time. You and I have so many opportunities, so many demands from all the electronics to all the things that we can do that it's so easy to forget what matters the most. You have to say no to some things to say yes to the things that matter. I've told you before how I was truly blessed by having such a wonderful mom and dad. My mom and dad were such great people. And, you know, later in life, dad had gotten a number of promotions and mom started her own business. And they did well financially in their later years. But I didn't realize growing up we were poor. I didn't realize it was because we were rich in all the things that mattered. My mom worked outside the home. My dad worked. Had my younger brother. We were all very busy in Little League and sports and drama and all kinds of things. But you know, when I look back on my life, I think about how my mom was someone who listened. Now my mom was a talker. She loved to talk. But when it came to her children, if we had something on our mind, 
she always had time to listen. It's kind of funny that 50 years later, when I look back and I think about my upbringing, I can't really remember what the conversations were about, but I have such an impression of mom always being there to talk. Whether I was five or 18, I knew she was available to listen to what I had to say and we could talk about anything. And it did so much in terms of the relationship that it built for us. She was willing to be there to listen in spite of all the other things that mattered. You only do that if you know how to focus. Focus on what's most important and say no to all the other things that don't matter so much. It is fascinating. This last week you had a big announcement about the iPhone 7. And as I've already told you, I got my iPhone and I got my iPad and I got my iPod and I got my iMac and I love all this kind of stuff. But isn't it interesting how it's dominated our lives and yet if you go back and look at how it came about, did you know that the iPhone only came out nine years ago? Nine years ago and it has revolution, changed the way that you and I feel we need to be so accessible through text and tweets and emails and it changed everything. And yet how did we get it? In 1995, Steve Jobs came back to Apple. He had been fired. You remember Apple had gone and then he got fired and went to Next and then Apple really began to crater and they went back to Steve Jobs and asked him to come back to Apple and he did and two years after he had come back to Apple, it was fascinating. The change that took place. In 95, Apple was working on 350 products. They had 350 products that were in development. Two years later, Apple had 10 products in development. Steve Jobs said no to 340 opportunities to say yes to 10 that mattered. No to 340 to say yes to 10. It made all the difference in the world. What are the things that really are important to you? What are the things that matter? What's the one thing? Have you put your relationships there? Secondly, James says, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to be angry. Again, I have found that it's usually when I'm so stretched and I feel I can't get everything done that I tend to get angry. I find my fuse shortens. I find myself get frustrated because I don't get it all done. And so when you're so stretched and you're running so hard, I think that's when it's easier to get angry because we forget the things that really do matter. I was thinking about this sermon this week and I couldn't help but go back and think of the story that I've shared before of when my own children were young. I mean, Marsh and I had Kelly and then we had Paul 
when they were young, she stayed home with the children. And when Paul, our youngest, went finally off to school, she went back to work. And so now as they were toddlers, we're both working and, and we've been starting this new church and life was so busy. And I just got to tell you, evening time was not a good time in the family. That's a time when the kids were running empty and they didn't do what you ask and they were fighting with everybody and my patients were running thin. I'd be nice. I'd been nice to the church all day long. I wasn't going to be nice anymore. <laughs> I was tired and they're pushing you and pushing you and we found every night we're going to bed crying and upset. It was not good and we said, we're not doing this. This is not the way we want to do it. So we made an intentional decision and what we started doing every night, even if we'd been fighting and tired, we went upstairs together, went to one child's bedroom and sat down and we listened. What'd you do today? Tell me about school. Let me tell you something I did today. We just listened, talked with each other. Then we had prayers. We would pray, give thanks for each other, talk about the day. We had our prayers together. And then Marsha and I would take one child and go to the other bedroom that they were going to be sleeping in. And we had the same routine, ritual every night. I'd go to the other room and I would say, do you know I'm the luckiest daddy in the world? And they would smile and I'd say, do you know why? And they'd say, yes. And I'd say, why? Because you have me. And I'd say, you're right. You're right. Sometimes they needed to be reminded. Sometimes I needed to be reminded. But it helped us to remember, I'm the luckiest daddy in the world because I have you. I got to tell you, this simple act that we did that did not take so long revolutionized and changed our family and the way that we went to bed each night and our relationship with one another because it moved us past being angry because we were so tired and stretched and so busy. It's what happens in our families. We forget the one thing, the thing that matters. To be there, to listen, to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to be angry. It happens on a larger level for people and strangers we don't even know. You know, I've been having fun recently. I, I stumbled across a show. I don't watch much TV anymore, but I have the DVR to record the news and sports. And um, I saw a show advertised and decided to record it. And it was called um, Better Late Than Never. It's been kind of a funny show with uh, um, Henry Winkler, who played the Fonz, and Bill Shatner from Star Trek. And, and then you got George Foreman, heavyweight champion of the world. And you got Terry Bradshaw, quarterback uh, from the Pittsburgh Steelers. And they rank from about 67 to 84. And now they've all gone off to the Far East, to Japan and Korea. And, and you just see them kind of, it's kind of a reality TV show. You follow them as they're being on a vacation, a trip. And they wanted to take this trip. They'd never been there and said, it's better late than never. And it really has been funny. But it's also got poignant moments. And one of them was they went to a place called Kyoto, Japan. Kyoto, Japan used to be the capital of Japan. And it's now such a beautiful place. A million people live there. It's got 2,000 Buddhist temples. 
places that are hundreds and hundreds of years old, 17 World Heritage Sites. It's so beautiful because it never was bombed in World War II. And they explained why it wasn't bombed. And so I decided to go do some research and check it out. And it's true. It goes back to the Secretary of War, Henry Stinson. Henry Stinson was our Secretary of War from 1940 to 1945. Henry is born in 1867, right after the Civil War. He would marry Mabel White, and after they got married, they took their honeymoon to Kyoto, Japan. He fell in love with the people and the culture and the beauty of the place. In the end, he'd become the governor of the Philippines, and while he and his wife in the Philippines, they made several trips to Kyoto. And then along came this war going on in the world, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted to bring, build coalition in the United States. He was obviously a Democrat, but he decided to reach out to a conservative Republican to be Secretary of War, and he called on Henry Stinson. I kind of like that idea, coalition, working together. He got a Republican to go and be the Secretary of War in the uh, Democrat cabinet, and Henry Stinson came on. He was 73 years old. Everybody said he's too old. He did it for the next five years to 78, and he worked the 20-year-olds into the ground. He did a great job. He saw the development of the atomic bomb. He did not want to use it. But when he looked at all the people who were going to die, trying to storm Japan, he finally thought it was the right thing to do and went to talk to the president about it. There was a group of military advisors that began to put together a, a list of the target cities. And there, when they got the list, listing five cities, number one was Kyoto. And Henry scratched it off and sent the list back. A few weeks later, the list came back, modified, but number one was Kyoto. He scratched it off. He sent it back to them. A few weeks later, they revised it and sent it back, and Kyoto was number one. He took the list to FDR and sold his case, and FDR said, absolutely, scratch it once and for all, and they did. Number two on the list was Hiroshima. Why did he want to scratch Kyoto? He knew people there. He respected their culture. He thought it looked so beautiful. When you know people and you respect people, it's hard to want to harm those people. After 9-11, have we simply lived in fear? Or have we gotten to know other people? To learn about other cultures? It changes the way we want to treat people. We will listen quickly, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. We can learn from the tragedies. Where are we now? What matters the most? What are the things that really count? What's your one thing? If you're remembering a national tragedy when so many die, I bet you'll stick people in there. Are you taking time to listen? One story, Rachel Remen. I love Rachel. She came here to speak.
I love her book, My Grandfather's Blessing. In the end, she tells about how she had been a pediatrician, became a counselor, and she had a client. He was a young man who was a surgeon. He was a cancer surgeon. He was in his early 40s, really good at what he did. But he came to see Rachel because he said he could hardly get out of bed in the morning, could hardly get dressed. He hated going to work. He just dreaded it. He was always seeing the same diseases, doing the same things. He thought he's just going to quit and do something different. And Rachel thought, my goodness gracious, this young man, he's just gone through undergraduate and medical school and residency. He's finally out in the world and he's good at what he's doing and he's going to walk away from it all. But he was so depressed and he found himself always getting so angry and frustrated at so many things. And so Rachel said, look, I want to ask you to do something. Would you go buy a journal? And each night when you come home, I want you to answer three questions. Today, what surprised me? What moved me? What inspired me? He said, all right. He went home for the next seven nights. He did it. Came back the next week. He had his journal and said, well, you can see my answers. And for all three questions, all seven days, it said, nothing, nothing, nothing. She said, okay, how about we try it another week? And so he did it another week. And when he came back the next time, he didn't mention it, and she didn't either. So there went another week, and then another. Six weeks went by. He hadn't brought it up, and finally he said, Rachel, I just got to tell you, the exercise has changed my life. Tell me how. Well, for so long I was seeing nothing, but finally I started seeing some things at the end of the day. But I never was seeing them real time until one day I remembered exactly where I was. In my office, there was a 38-year-old mother. She had had ovarian cancer. I'd done the surgery. She had had tough chemo. It had been hard. But now she was sitting here for a checkup and she had a four-year-old little daughter in her lap and a six-year-old little girl behind her and they had a smile on their face and they looked so good. And in that moment, I said to her, you inspire me. I mean, I don't know where you found your strength, the courage. I've seen you go through this in your spirit and the kind of mother you are and the way you are blessing your children, you inspire me. And he said, she smiled. And I realized it was the first time I'd ever seen her smile. But she smiled and she said, Thank you. You don't know what that means to me. And so, Rachel, what I started doing when I went to my patients, I would say, where do you find your strength? Where do you find such courage? How do you do this? I started to listen. And as I listened, they started to tell me their story. They started to tell me about their journey and their life and where they were. And I got to tell you, it began to inspire me, surprised me, moved me, inspired me as I listened to them. And then they started to thank me. Suddenly my patients were thanking me for the surgeries I'd done on them. And they were even buying me presents for heaven's sakes. He reached into his pocket and he suddenly pulled out the stethoscope. And he said, I had a patient who just gave me this as a gift. 
On it she could see where his name was engraved. And and she looked at Josh and she could just tell he was so moved by this. He's simply looking at it. And Rachel said, so Josh, tell me, what do you do with that? Huh? What do you do with that, Josh? And suddenly he smiled and said, I listen to hearts, Rachel. I listen to hearts. It's in the name of the Father, 